Great to see you all this morning. Um, good morning. Um, if you're new here today, um, you're really welcome here. Um, my name's David. I'm part of the leadership team that lead this community. And uh, um, it's just really good to be here. Um, I'm going to make a deal with you guys, okay? I was already worried that I was going to be sort of a, a, a lengthy morning. We're going to get into some Bible teaching and some Bible study on Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to do my absolute best to get us out of here as soon as possible. Um, not because I don't love you all and we don't want to be here, but it is actually quite cold. Is it quite cold or is it just me? It's, yeah. Um, so... Um, I'm okay, I'm all right. I've got a coat out the back. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, that guy would give his, have his jacket off his very back for his friends. Um, <laughs> wonderful. Can I, here's another deal I'll do with you. Um, I uh, was at a leadership um, meeting during, uh, it was last week actually, and I received a word. You know, another leader came up to me and really sensed he had something to share with me and he wanted to pray with me. And it was, it was actually in connection to the release of finances that are in relation to building, building and resources and facilities. And it's a strange word in some ways. It's just sort of out of the blue. But as he prayed with me, I really, really sensed that there was something really on that. And I received it and shared it with our leadership team. And um, we'll, We're going to speak more to this, I think, in the months ahead. But I would love it. Can I invite you all? Can we pray? and contend in 2020 that we see some release of money that might help us make this space even more habitable. There's so many wonderful things. It, it sort of annoys me and breaks my heart that Benji's pioneering a lovely fundraising night and everyone comes and has to sit in the cold and um, all of that sort of stuff. And we know it's just part of the charm of this place and the story here, it is, but can we do that? And if, you have, if you're sitting on a lot of money and you just feel God speaking to you right now, come and speak to me afterwards. I will happily take it off your hands. I'm being absolutely serious. Um, absolutely serious. So yeah, let's pray. Let's be contending that in 2020, that, you know, that God would really open up some, some reserves for us financially, some ways that we might even steward this building well, because I believe that there's so much we can do with this space, and it is a th it's a bottleneck for us, I think, really. Um, so let's be praying. Will, we do, will you do that with me? Yeah, I've just eaten up two minutes of precious time, but I think that's important. So a month ago, we started a new series um, in Ruth, and that's, we only got as far as chapter one. Um, Ian, this is really echoey. Can we sort of... Some, Pull that back, I'm struggling a wee bit with the mic. Um, yeah, so opening chapter about a month ago, a story of intimacy and love, um, survival, identity, belonging. Um, as Christians, we have this very high view of scripture and the book of Ruth is part of that. We know that the scriptures are not, that's brilliant, Ian, um, they're not a rule book. Scriptures are not a rule book. They're not a theological dictionary. The scriptures from Genesis to Revelation tell us a story. They tell us a story, a narrative of God's redemptive work in the world. What do we mean by that? We mean God's saving work, his rescue, his remaking of creation, his renewal of humanity, his transformation of society, his establishing of a new flourishing humanity under his rule and reign. That's what the Bible, the scriptures are, are telling us 
are catching us up. And that's the story that we're part of, um, that we're made in God's image. And although we have found ourselves broken, in a sense, in rebellion, the story continues to woo us, to invite us into finding forgiveness, finding home, finding acceptance, finding family, the stuff we've been singing about this morning, that we're no longer orphans, but we're in the family of God. And that is my story. I follow Jesus and I am a child of God. And it is your story for so many of you in this room that is the gospel, as the gospel through Christ. Um, and there's so many stories in this room, amen? You will remember, um, yeah, that we said the story is one, I say big story, but it's made up of a lot of little stories along the way. And all the little stories along the way push forward the big story. And so Ruth is the little story along the way. And it's a seemingly small, intimate story. But as we look closer, it begins to speak about universal themes that are shouting out to us. And Ruth has a lot to say to us. The book of Ruth is doing a lot if we have eyes to see. It's giving us perspective. It's giving us perspective. One of those perspectives is that it's a book of ordinary people. It's a book not of the big giants of the faith like Abraham or Moses, but of ordinary people doing ordinary things and God being in the story. And it's a book that changes our perspective also on women because women are front and center, um, giving us a different perspective. And so as I, I think as we continue today to look at the book of Ruth, hopefully it will help us see a different perspective on the big story of God's redemptive work in the world. Does that make sense? So, and it's no coincidence, as I said a month ago when we started this series, that we're doing this right now in the middle of a world which is characterized by things like Brexit, no matter what side you're on in that argument, but immigration crisis, polarization, division, suspicion, all of those things. It's not a coincidence that we're doing it now because it helps us, I believe, this reading of Ruth helps us engage with the questions that come from all of this stuff that's going on in our society and our culture today around borders and belonging and identity. So amazing stuff in Ruth. We've had a lot of lovely examples over the last month. Concrete examples, Home for Good, Adoption and Rosie and the interview with Dan, beautiful. We've had Jared McKenna talk to us about his trip to Manus off Papua New Guinea and his encounter with refugees that are being held illegally there. Beautiful, listen to the podcast if you want to hear stories. And then last week we had Alan talking to us about the river of God flowing and how it's continuing to flow. So um, we're going to do some Bible teaching today. So if you want the stories, go and listen to the podcast, go and listen to Jared. We're going to do Bible teaching today. Ruth chapter one, to catch us up on the story very quickly, we're introduced to these three interesting people, Naomi, Ruth, Orpah. Seemingly ordinary but unconventional family. You remember that Naomi, along with her husband, had left Israel in the midst of a great economic crisis, a great famine. She'd left and she'd went to the foreign land of Moab. I suppose she's hoping for survival. There's a famine in her own land. Let's go to a foreign land, survival, safety, and I suppose the hope of a new life. And in Moab, Naomi's two sons married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then catastrophe strikes. Catastrophe strikes, the father Elimelech and both the two sons die, leaving Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws as widows. Naomi has lost everything and she decides to return to her homeland. And the two daughter-in-laws who are Moabites, of course, they're also widows. They decide to return with Naomi. If you remember, we looked at that. And Naomi is bowled over by this. She, in fact, is bowled over, but she implores them to stay 
to stay in their own homeland because they have a future in front of them. They have their whole lives. They can rebuild their lives among their own people. And so Orpah does stay, but Ruth goes with Naomi. She would not leave Naomi. Do you remember we said that these famous words, where you will go, I will go. Where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And we see this amazing decision by Ruth to embrace kindness, the hesed love, as we talked about it, the committed, steadfast love that is used about God and his people is used about Ruth and her love toward Naomi. And, uh, and so we see this amazing uh, embrace of, of, of radical kindness, Ruth choosing to overcome the borders, the divisions that would characterize her as one a Moabite and her, her mother-in-law, an Israelite, and those two people groups being enemies, and Ruth transcends that with this hesed love. She also lays down all the potential for her future, her p- position of privilege, as it were, that she could just stay in Moab and have a lovely life. She lays that down to go and follow this harder road, remaining faithful to Naomi because of her love for Naomi. So we're picking up the story in chapter two. Open your Bibles. They're on the tables, your smartphone app. Open it. It should be on the screen behind us. And chapter two, here we go. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Let's just stop there. So you remember at the end of chapter one, catastrophe had hit. They were on their way back to the homeland. It was not an ideal situation, but there was a hint of hope at the end of chapter one. The harvest was coming. There was, there was a sense that, there was a sense of hope in a sense. And um, nevertheless, in the story, Naomi remains silent. Perhaps she's still grieving the loss of her husband or her, her farmland, her sons and all of that. And um, perhaps even she's resentful. She's gonna have to, even though she loves Ruth, Maybe she's resentful. She's got to come back to her homeland with Ruth, another another mouth to feed, and a foreign one at that. Perhaps there's a sense here in between the lines that Naomi is grieving and perhaps resentful, or perhaps Naomi's just concerned because at the end of the day, she knows what it's like for the dispossessed domestic poor to survive. Never mind Ruth's challenge of also being a foreigner, who's also poor and the stress of that. And so there's a lot of worry. I suppose in the air. Verse two, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find harvest. And she said to him, and she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers or the harvesters. So here we have Ruth speaking. Ruth is the one that's speaking. Ruth is the one that's taking initiative. Ruth is the one that's, I'm gonna go out. I'm now in this, we're back home in the homeland and I'm the foreigner, but I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna earn our crust. I'm gonna earn, I'm gonna look after our needs. And we have this term gleaning that comes up. Yeah, so we're gonna look at that for a second. And it says, she set out and went and gleaned in the fields. Um, And she happened to come upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Important word there relative and behold Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers the Lord be with you and they answered the Lord bless you then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers whose young woman is this and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered she is the young Moabite woman who came back from with Naomi from the country of Moab she's trying to make the point here that she is the Moabite woman from Moab don't remember don't forget this in the story she's the Moabite woman from Moab um 
she said to me, please let me glean among the shear, among, gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Here's the first big point of this morning I want to talk about the backdrop of this whole story is really, really important and I think really, really fascinating for us as we study this chapter. Gleaning in the fields, what's all that about? What's the gleaning in the fields? To do to understand what's going on here, what Ruth's doing, we have to go back to talk about the Jewish law, the Torah. Track with me here, okay? It's really I promise it's really interesting. <laughs> so in the Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see God creating humanity and humanity rebels, yeah? And later Jesus, or later God chooses Abraham um, and he blesses him and chooses him to bless all the nations through his family. And Abraham's descendants then end up as slaves in Egypt. This is the story, overview. Uh, and God rescues them. And then after God rescues his people from his exodus, he gives them a covenant uh, and agrees to protect them and bless them if they follow a set of rules and rituals that we refer to as the Old Testament law, the Torah. And there's a total of 613 different commandment, commands given to the people, the most famous of which are the Ten Commandments. And this is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the English Torah in English means the law, but it's more than just laws. It's a story, you know, the, the, the packed full of laws. I'm sure you've read them in the scriptures, but this is a story about how God is creating a people to love him and to love others. God's creating a people to love him and to love others. And so we see this pattern of the Israelites receiving the law and rejecting it. And then at the end of the Torah, we see Moses telling the people that the only way they'll ever be able to follow God's laws is if their hearts are transformed, um, which is really interesting. Why is this really relevant to Ruth? Why is it important? Well, here's the backdrop, the backdrop to the story. Imagine we're on a, a set, a theater set. This, the context of this story of Ruth and Boaz is the kind, what I'm gonna call the kind concern, hopefully there's a title slide up here, um, the kind concern of the Torah for people in need. That's the first big point, the kindness of the Torah. Because in Eastern cultures, here's the thing, it was not assumed that all people were equal in ancient Eastern cultures. It was obvious to those cultures that people in fact weren't equal, that men weren't equal that they were organized, those societies around hierarchies, around the fittest, the strongest, and the most powerful, ruling over the common ordinary class that would serve in servitude. But the Torah states, radically, I would propose, that all humans are equal, made in the image of God. God gives the law to all people. In ancient Eastern societies, covenants were made between people, or between kings, the Torah stands differently because it's a covenant between God and his people, all his people. God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Or in the Song of Songs, we see the same kind of language. I am the beloved and he is mine. This is covenantal marriage type language. The Torah is doing something really interesting. And so God gives his law to the people, of the Israelites, and he establishes a lot of things but among that, he establishes a culture of generosity. A culture of generosity. It's really important for the story today because they were to be a people who were just, who were fair, who were generous, 
the whole of Israel's economy was to be orientated around the rights of people to own land because it wasn't feudal like the uh, warlords would, 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 would own all the land and run all the land or statism where the state would own all the land but actually the Torah spelled out that everyone can own the land, the people could own the land. It also helped them provide for the most needy in their society, for widows, for orphans, and for resident aliens who were too poor to form the farm themselves. So it's really the Torah, which seems so distant from our reality today, is actually the first welfare state, in a sense, trying to establish, in a sense, the first welfare state. You see all these different examples, the seven-year debt release, um, not charging interest on loans, giving a tithe to help farmers in trouble. Um, and the most relevant, as I've said today, laws about welcoming the stranger and laws about how much each farmer could harvest. So the backdrop to Ruth gleaning in the fields is this, that in Leviticus, farmers were told not to harvest the corners of their fields. They were not to go back when they've missed stuff. They were to leave it. And it was to be left and called gleanings that the poor would come and use and gather up. And that is what is going on with Ruth. Ruth is going because they have nothing. Ruth and Naomi have nothing and she's going to the fields to gather up. Deuteronomy 24 says that God has done this to remind his people that they were once poor aliens in Egypt. It says this, let me just read Deuteronomy 24. When you're harvesting your field, if you forget a sheaf, don't go back out to the field to get it. Let the foreigners and the orphans and the widows take it. If you do this, the eternal, your God, will bless everything you do. When you beat your olive tree to knock the olives onto the ground where you can harvest them, don't shake them again and again and again to strip the tree clean. Let Leave some for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. When you cut the, the grapes off the vines, don't go around a second time and get all the ones you missed. Leave them for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Remember, it says this in verse 22, remember you two were destitute slaves in Egypt. That's why I'm commanding you to do this and to provide for the people in need around you. So we see the backdrop to the story of Ruth in chapter two is the protection and defense of the poor was built in, built in right from the Exodus story in fact, where Yahweh had delivered his people from bondage and made them a liberating people. So it's this demand is imprinted on the law that they would be a liberating people. Um, one scholar, David Baker, concludes that from a survey of all the laws, the Old Testament is most concerned to ensure that widows and orphans are not abused or exploited in law courts or in financial dealings. As Jesus says in Matthew 23, the weighty things of the Torah are justice and mercy and truth. Landowners can rejoice in their abundance, but landless poor can share in the abundance too. And the Lord commands them to open their hearts and their tables to one and to all. Let me spell this out. The, the Torah, I'm finishing up with this, the Torah is not just a set of religious ideas, but it's a set of political and economic ideas. And that's putting it a little bit mildly because the Torah, the law of God, the Mosaic law is a radical revolution. It's a radical revolution in ancient times and it was sowing the seeds 
that have given birth to the kinds of ideals that we espouse and seek after today, like human rights and equality and so on. It was revolutionary. And here's the thing about it. It was revolutionary because the Torah was a law that worked its magic from the inside out. It was working within the context of the day, trying to bring change in, an ancient, in ancient times, in ancient culture, where none of these ideas were around. The Torah was a radical revolution in the midst of that. And this is the social revolution that God is leading and beginning in humanity, beginning with the law. And that's the backdrop to the scenes that we see in Ruth. It's really important to get that. That's the backdrop. The migrant worker, the widow going to the fields to glean what she can to support herself. And Naomi, we assume that that's just the way it always has been. But in contrast, um, to many cultures in that day, it wasn't. And it's so interesting that our society today is built around efficiency. Don't miss one bit. Milk out of every employee and every system all that you can. And built into the Torah is inefficiency. It's built in so that the poor can survive, so that there's welfare for one and all. It's unbelievable. It's amazing. I just want to put that out there for us today. Read the Torah. Dig into the Bible. Do some Bible study. You will be amazed at what the scriptures can teach us about the ways of God and what they can actually say to us. They, 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 they present the foundations of the society that we live in today. And we live in a world today that is, continues to build and organize itself around power and privilege and hierarchy. It is a world of deep, fierce inequality. It is a world of suspicion and mistreatment of the foreigner. It is a world where people continue to struggle and are impoverished while the very few are living lavishly. But God's story is one of redeeming this world, bringing shalom, where all people can live in peace with one another and with their God. And this is the backdrop to Ruth, the kind concern of the Torah for those in need. What an intimate little story Ruth is, and yet what interesting stuff is going on when you begin to peel back the layers and look at the context and see what is going on. Second point I want to bring out, not the, the kindness of the Torah, but I want to talk about the resilience of Ruth. Here is Ruth going out to risk everything. Why is Naomi not doing this? We don't really know. Perhaps she's still a little bit down or facing yeah, the, the reality of her circumstances because she knows the land. She knows the ways of, this new, of, this, of her homeland. But Ruth is the one to go out and do the cleaning. Ruth is the one. And she goes out and it says in ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, it talks about the reapers or the harvesters. And that's a masculine term. So what you see is Ruth going to the fields to harvest behind the men who are harvesting, which is quite unusual behavior. Um, and Boaz asks about this in the passage. And he says, who is this woman? Um, um, and, he, and then he notes that she is the one that has come back with Naomi. And he remembers about her kindness. And he meets with her and he tries to say, he tries to point her in the right direction. He tries to point her in the right direction. To whom does this young girl belong? It's a sense, that question is a little bit like when Saul asks of David, who, does this young man, who is this young boy um, when he kills Goliath? It's the same kind of question. It's not like, I don't know who he is. It's like, it's, it's more like a, how did this young guy, who is he? Who is he? How did this young guy defeat the, 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 the giant? It's the same kind of question posed of Ruth that Boaz is asking. How can this Moabite woman 
Who is this woman that she's doing this, that she's out risking her life to gather up all that she needs for Naomi? She's a Moabite. She needs, um, she's so resourceful. Um, how is this happening? Um, he's amazed at her kindness and resourcefulness. Um, and so he asks that question. And it continues, as we've noted, that it continues to say, the passage continues to emphasize that she's a Moabite. She's a Moabite. Don't forget that she's a Moabite. So let's read on, verse eight. Now listen, my daughter, Boaz says to Ruth, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to the young women. Let your eyes be on the field you're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you when you're thirsty to go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn? Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward he has given you by the Lord and the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, although I am not one of your servants. So there is this sense that Boaz talks, points her to, he says to her, don't go and glean in the other fields, glean in my field. There's a sense here in this story, if you're paying attention, that it's quite vulnerable for women to do this in the fields. The fields are quite vast. There's corners of the fields that are quite isolated, quite shady, quite dark. It's quite a vulnerable thing for a young woman to be out in the fields. There's a assumption here that it's a dangerous thing. Um, and yet Boaz is, is coming around Ruth and protecting her and saying, stay with me, stay in my fields and don't go with the men, go with the women behind. He's trying to protect Ruth. It's really, really interesting. And he actually describes Ruth's journey in this language a little bit similarly to the journey that Abraham and Sarah took. Leaving her homeland, go from your country and your kindred to the land that I will show you. It's the same kind of language in Ruth that Boaz is acknowledging. It's the imperative love of Ruth that has brought her to this moment. She has been so faithful to Naomi. It's the imperative love for Naomi that has brought her here, the Hesed love, the kindness of Ruth, the migrant worker, that she's carrying the responsibility, putting herself in harm's way to make a living. In a world where there's so much division, Immigration, people traveling for safety, women trying to navigate the everydays of life. I wonder if we can see the face of Jesus, a bit like Jared was encouraging us, in the face of these people that we come and see encounter every day, the migrant worker or the women. Do we see people the same way that Ruth saw Naomi? the love that she had for her? Do we see people the way that Boaz looked upon Ruth, the migrant worker? Is that the kind of view that we have, of the people that we encounter every day? Here's the third point, and we're nearly there. We've looked at the kindness of the law. We've looked at the resilience of Ruth and the dynamics. We're now looking at the honorable landowner and the favor of Boaz. Let me just read this from verse 14. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. 
So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Again, he's warning his young men not to lay a hand on her. And also pull out uh, some of the bundles for her and leave for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening and she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an epoch of barley. She took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out the food that she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her mother-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you may be assaulted. Again, another hint of the vulnerabilities here. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So here we have this character, Boaz, and all the stuff that he's doing to provide for Ruth. Boaz is a no-nonsense sort of guy. He's a man of character and principle and responsibility in the story. And we encounter him for the first time in this chapter. And he's a model in the, in the, in the chapter. He's a model of obedience to the Torah and the way he treats the poor. He's going above and beyond it, in fact, by leaving more for her to pick up in the fields. And Boaz is a man of favor and of grace. You know, Ruth was not expecting this kind of kindness. This is extraordinary kind of kindness. And the book of Ruth is trying to tell us something here. And neither is Naomi. Naomi is shocked as well. Naomi is shocked. It feels like the whole story turns right here on this encounter with Boaz. And we see Naomi's mood changing at the end of the chapter. It's as if she can smell possibility in the air. He's one of our relatives. He's one of our redeemers. He may be able to help us even more. It's like she smells the possibility of romance or love. But it's more than just romance or love. It's she's, she's thinking about this marriage, the marriage laws that are in place to protect the vulnerable. Um, this term kinsman redeemer, we will look at that more when we get to chapter four. But that's what she's thinking about here. This redemptive law that would actually help to protect the widows like Ruth and, and Naomi and help integrate them back into society. She's thinking there might be another turn in the story here. That's what's going on. Boaz is a man of grace here. Contrast the way Boaz treats Ruth with the way that the overseer, you know, the overseer treated Ruth. The overseer sent Ruth out to harvest with the men. He didn't really seem to really look out for her welfare, didn't really care about that. Maybe because she's a Moabite woman, didn't really worry about that. Boaz sees, not a Moabite, Boaz sees the person of Ruth. Boaz's behavior, the way he, he looks beyond divisions and borders, and he looks at the person, her kindness. There is a sense in the story of the intrinsic humanity of Ruth. And Ruth, this book of Ruth is trying to do this. This is what the book of Ruth is trying to do, break down these barriers, these labels, 
and these identities. Look at the character and the behavior of Ruth and Boaz is doing that. What might Ruth have expected? She wouldn't have expected Boaz's actions to humanize her. Boaz's actions to recognize her more than just simply a Moabitess for Moabite. Boaz is redrawing the stereotypes. He's reframing it and he's drawing attention to Ruth's loyalty, her love and kindness for Naomi, her behavior. Where is the story going today? What's the thing that I want to draw out today? I suppose there's a couple of things that we could do to finish just to think about this as we think about this story because that's we've got so far, that's the end of chapter chapter two. We're going to chapter three next week. I think there are big questions raised in this chapter communally about how we relate to people and our social responsibility to everyone beyond any kind of label or division or categorization or identity that we are to look at people for who they are. The book uncovers this possibility that belonging, that Ruth could find belonging in this foreign people. And it wouldn't be because of her bloodline, but it would be because of her behavior and her kindness. And there would be a social responsibility that would sweep her up into the community. It begs us to ask the question about the role of kindness in our society today, in our discourse today, in our conversation today, and how we talk about the other. I think that's what this book is trying to encourage us to, to do. The story hints that some people in our society are vulnerable. And it's not hard to imagine how the migrant worker or the domestic poor are particularly unsafe. And there are many questions, as I've said, questions about the role and place of kindness, even in our society today. It also talks about the role of those that are in privilege. If you're in the position of Boaz, there is actually, because you are of the people of God, you are there's a social responsibility imperative on you to begin to look out for the one who's surviving, trying to live through the day. There's an imperative, there's a conversation that begins around that. Of, as we, the people of God, or as we, the people who have privileged position, how we might react and respond to those in need. There's a conversation that happens today. It speaks powerfully maybe about the treatment of women, the treatment of foreign people or the poor, in a world divided by racial lines, national identities, political lines. Our God is a God who defends the fatherless. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien. And he asks his people in Isaiah, he says, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In Psalm 82, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless, maintain the rights of the poor. In James, it says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This beautiful verse in Hosea, for in you the fatherless finds compassion, favor, grace. So there's communal questions raised but there's personal ones today too because this whole story reminds us and this is my last point really we're going to break bread we're going to worship together this story also reminds us personally about our own story personal alienation 
poverty, captivity. And Boaz's kindness reminds us of the liberating kindness of God to provide for us, to see us as human, not as sinner. To desire to protect us, to sweep us up into his protective community where we can find refuge under his wing. It's all mirroring the love of God for us, the Hesed love of God for us who pursues us radically in our desolation, crosses boundaries, crosses divisions to help make a way for us to belong. And there is no more boundary crossing love than the love of Christ that came to bring life and resurrection. So Boaz in this story is a Christ figure. And I'll leave you with this thought this morning, Redeemer, which is this, that perhaps the story of Boaz and his role in this story so far, his, perhaps his farm and the image of the verses that I read out has got something to say to us because perhaps Boaz's farm is a special kind of place. Maybe not all farms are like that. Perhaps Boaz's farm is a place where the law is practiced in fairness and kindness. And maybe this is why Boaz warns Ruth not to go to any other field. Perhaps the idealized form of Boaz is a place where the foreign laborer has an abundance of water, like we read about, an abundance of bread where they're satisfied, wine vinegar to flavor it, Abundance of roasted grain to eat with plenty left over and gleaning is practiced generously. There's even a strong relational bond between the farm owner, the landowner, and the migrant worker. There's an interesting relational bond that's happening. Perhaps this image in Ruth chapter 2 is a vision of the eschatological community. Perhaps this is a little glimpse about the end of our story in Revelation 22, when it says this, that the angel showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the great street of the city and on each side of the river there stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every mouth and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and he will, they, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord. God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Perhaps this little glimpse of the way that Boaz is treating Ruth is a small little glimpse into the promise of our story, the rescue and the resurrection that we've experienced and the garden city that we will be part of when we are sweeped into the community of God in his protection, in his shalom, in his peace. This is the story that we belong to. And as we look at Ruth, we begin to see these themes just peeking out from in between the lines. I'd love us to stand. I'd love us to finish today. We just about made it. Thank you for sticking with me this morning. Thank you for your patience. Can I invite the band up? I'd love us, as we come to the table, to just think about what has, sits on your heart this morning. There's something that the Lord has, has put on your heart this morning, something that maybe I've said or maybe something that has been said earlier on and we've sang. 
that God was wanting to say to you, to speak to you, to remind you of the story that you're caught up in and his favor on you, his favor on you to welcome you into his family, to welcome you under his wing. So as we come to the table this morning, as we come and are satisfied with the bread and the wine, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, let us remember the story of Ruth. Let us remember what's been going on there. Let us remember that we were once slaves in Egypt. We were once the poor, desolate and in need. And we have been welcomed into the family of God. Let us come and eat. Let us come and be merry. Let us come and celebrate this morning that you belong, that we belong. Thanks, Matt. Lead us.